everybody. Um, welcome to RUF. My name is John Bourgeois. If I haven't met you, I'm the campus minister here. Not good. Excuse me. Welcome to RUF. Um, so last week, I um, I got the opportunity to participate in. Uh, the Department of Student Life, they had this big meeting. So this is everyone on campus who is uh, involved in like student services, whether it be Dean of Students stuff, to the counseling centers, to the um, Wake Forest Police Department. They had this big meeting. They do it once a semester. Um, and as a campus minister, they invited the campus ministers to participate in it, um, which is really cool that I got this opportunity to, to see how the university makes sense of itself. Um, and so during our, during our time together, um, we uh, went through a section of bystander intervention training. You all know what that is, bystander intervention training? Well, freshmen, you all are actually going to go through it. Um, I don't know if they've told you this yet. Spoiler alert. Um, so in like with December or something, they're actually going to walk you all through bystander intervention training. Um, but what it is is it's, um, it's this training that is geared towards teaching us um, how to care for one another in situations where we usually remain silent. And uh, during the training, they actually showed us this video, um, this really creepy video of um, a guy. It had a scene of a guy putting a um, uh, spiking a girl's drink, putting a roofie in a girl's drink, and he turns to the camera and says, thanks for not telling anyone. I mean, really creepy. And this, this showing this, this great need that we have of if we see something like that, we need to intervene, right? We need to see this is a, this is a bad situation and we need to intervene. Um, this, I don't know if you all have taken psychology classes. You've learned about you know, the idea of, of groupthink when we're in large groups, this diffusion of responsibility. Um, in intro psych classes, they tell these stories about um, murders happening in public spaces and nobody... No one coming to help because everyone assumes that someone else is going to do it, um, right? We have these stories of these things happening again and again in our midst where um, horrible things happen to people and no one steps up to do anything about it because either we're scared or we feel like it, it actually doesn't have anything to do with me or we think maybe someone else is going to step up and do it. Um, so why is this? Why don't we step up into these things? Um, a few weeks ago, I was in another meeting with, uh, where the, the chief of campus police was there, um, and she was talking about Wake Forest, and she said that it has a small-town culture. Um, and I asked her what she meant by this. And what she went on to say is that Wake is a place, and you guys have probably experienced this, it's a place where everyone knows your business. Everyone knows what you've done, right? The, the grapevine at Wake Forest stuff moves really fast. Everyone knows what you've done, but you're not allowed to talk about what's been done to you. There's this code of silence here. Everyone knows what you've done, but you're not allowed to talk about what's been done to you. So I was thinking about these two things, and I was asking the question, what, what type of people does Wake Forest need? Um, what type of people does Wake Forest need? And, and the bystander intervention training, the university's training, says we need bystanders who are intervened. Um, this is a new way of saying that we need people who will look at us who will see us as valuable, who will understand our situation, whatever it may be, and will love us. And it's not just Wake Forest that needs this, right? Um, you need this. I need this. And how often this semester have you needed someone to look at you, to see you, to understand your situation, and to love you? Right? Exactly. We all need this. And this idea actually has a central place in the Bible. Um, 
There's a story of Jesus when he's with a teacher of the law, and the, the teacher asks Jesus to summarize the law. And Jesus says that the law is summarized in love your God with all your love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Bystander intervention is loving your neighbor. Um, it was so interesting to be in this meeting where people thought it was this really exciting new idea. And I'm like, y'all, this is old. I mean, this is what Jesus taught, that we would love our neighbors. Um, so this semester, we've been reading the book of Colossians together during RUF large group. And Colossae was a place like Wake Forest that needed good neighbors. Um, and so what we're going to read in this section together is um, Paul is applying. What we've seen so far is that Paul sees um, the world through the lens of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And he's applying Jesus' death and resurrection to the church at Colossae and saying, what does it look like for the church to live like Jesus' death and resurrection um, are the truest things that have happened in human history? Um, so if you'll turn with me to Colossians 3, 5 through 11, it's printed on your pumpkin orange sheets. Um, and I'm going to read starting in verse 5. This is God's word for us tonight. He gives it to us because he loves us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there, there is not J Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one, by, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Um, Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the songs that we've sung together, um, for the time that we've shared with one another. We ask now, as we read your word and we hear from it, um, would you help us? Would you help me as I speak? Um, Lord, use my words that uh, this might be clear, that we might see what it looks like to live in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, help us, we pray, for your glory um, and our joy and the blessing of our neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, Paul's project in Colossians is applying Jesus' death and resurrection to all of life. And the reality that by faith, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are able to look at his death for sin and say, I need that to be true for me, if you have faith in Christ, then you are united with him in his death and resurrection. 
Paul articulates this by saying, you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. And here in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul takes up the question, what does it look like for us to live like this is true? What does it look like for us to live like we are united to Jesus and his death and resurrection? And to live in light of this together. Um, as I read it, you might have seen that he's saying you, you, you over and over again. And anywhere that you is using this, actually 12 times, it's all in the plural. He's talking to the church. So what does it look like for y'all? What does it look like for us together to live like this is true? And Paul is saying that together we will be people who exist for our neighbors. And he does this through three prepositions, and this is our outline for tonight. Off, on, and in. Put off, put on, dwell in. The outline is put off death, put on love, and let Christ dwell in you. So first, put off death. You have died with Christ, so put off death. Here he's saying that he's saying to put the acts of death that you perform with your bodies and you perform with your mouths to put them to death. In verse 5, we have this list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And everything in this list is about sexual greed, lust. One commenter writes that sexual sin is fundamentally a matter of covetousness, an insatiable, self-gratifying greed that has the control and consumption of the other person as its ultimate desire. Let me say that again. It's Sexual sin is fundamentally a matter of covetousness, an insatiable, self-gratifying greed that has the control and consumption of the other person as its ultimate desire. So love is a gift from God. Love is self-giving. But lust is taking. Love is laying down one's life for another, where lust is the opposite of this. It's using sex as a means to consume and devour one another. And what are we doing when we use one another to satiate our sexual appetites? We're saying with our minds and our, mod- and our bodies that other people exist for our consumption. And Paul says that this is idolatry. Is it any wonder then that he is angry when the object of his love, the object of God's love, you and me, humanity, is constantly distorted and abused through this idolatry. Brian Walsh writes this. He says, Wrath is the right response to screwing around with idols. Wrath is the appropriate emotion in the face of adulterous infidelity. Those who have been sexually brutalized, oppressed, raped, and reduced to commodities need to have a court of appeal before which they can bring their legitimate court, bring their legitimate complaint. And that court, Paul assures them, is the judgment seat of God. And Paul says that we were all once walking in this, using others, consuming others with our minds or with our bodies for our own pleasure. We were all once tasting this death. And you know that it's death because you've tasted the aftertaste, which is shame. But we again, right, we return to it again and again. And God, and God says that if you're united to Christ in his resurrection, you are to put this to death God says to put off death, not just the things we do with our bodies, but then he says to do it, put to death the things we do with our mouths. Look at verse 8. He says, put it all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and don't lie to one another. Think about how you speak about your roommate or the people in your classroom that are doing better than you or that girl that you just can't help gossip about or that guy that you hate. Whenever you see him, you seethe with anger. Paul is saying to put all of this to death. Put off this death. 
But it's so hard, isn't it? I was so convicted today as I was working on this sermon because um, I saw myself in it. I saw my own, um, my own loose lips, my own gossip, and also um, the way that I tell little white lies when I find myself caught in something. And I'll lie to people I love in order to keep myself from being backed into a corner. God is saying to me and he's saying to you to put this to death. Put this to death. And he gives us actually a great picture of this um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, The Great Divorce is a story. It's an allegory of a bus full of people who go from the suburbs of hell into the immense reality, like the over-reality of the edges of heaven. I want to read you all a section from this. It's a little bit long, um, but I think it it captures this really beautifully. Um, So the scene I'm going to read, there's a visitor from hell who's described as a ghost, and he has an encounter with an angel. And this ghost has a red lizard, um, a red lizard of lust perched upon his shoulder. And like all ghosts, he um, he was insubstantial, but he was dark and oily. He had a little red lizard sitting on his shoulder, twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. The ghost turned his head to the lizard with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. The lizard ceased, or he ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there is this heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, he was indicating the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood. Well, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it's all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it. Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure we'll be able to keep an order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use of all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd like to let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If, I wanted, if you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would all be over by now if you had. The angel responded, I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what he was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? 
And I'll be so good. I admit I've, been, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the, ghost, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right, said the ghost. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I, said the angel. Damn and blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. And the burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. Ow, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. And for a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. I think that's funny. Um, Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I'd ever seen. Silverly, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. And its stamp, at each stamp, the land shook. The new man turned and clapped the horse's neck. It's, it nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels, and they were off before I knew it was happening. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains, and then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling which seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves, into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning." Put the lizard to death, and God will transform it into a stallion. Put off death, and put on love. Put on love. In verse 10, Paul says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on love. My children are four and one and a half. Uh, Mary Landon, who's a year and a half, is practicing putting on clothes. 
Now, we, don't, we dress her still. She's a year and a half. But we'll find her going through the laundry basket and putting on clothes, putting a pair of pants on her head, or putting both feet into one leg of, of the pants, right? She has no idea how to put on clothes. And Leo, who's four, is starting to dress himself. Uh, this morning, he came downstairs already dressed, and he was wearing his shoes and jeans, and he had a, um, his tape measure tucked into his waistband, um, and he had a T-shirt, and he had a hat and sunglasses on, which isn't really appropriate for, you know, 7 a.m. in November. Um, and from the stories I've heard from y'all, um, it, y'all can wake up at 7.55 a.m. and be seated in class by 8 a.m., fully dressed. I mean, how did you get so good at putting on your clothes? Practice, right? It's practice. And that's what Paul is saying here with this put off and this put on language. He's evoking this image of changing clothes. Put off the clothes of death and put on the clothes of love. Put off sin and put on virtue. And when we first do it, it's so hard, but we get better at it with practice. Paul's saying, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on the clothing of love And know that because you're loved and because you're set apart by God, you can't mess this up. Just keep trying. So what does he tell us to put on? Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He's saying, put on forgiveness. And the word for forgiveness here is the verb form of the word grace. So in effect, what he's saying is grace others. Not as they've graced you, but as you've been disgraced. As you have a complaint against someone. As someone has sinned against you, grace them, forgive them. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus has forgiven you. You've been shown grace by God, therefore you must forgive. And above all... You know, if someone's putting on clothes, the image is that above all, the, the piece of clothing that, that covers it all up and ties it all tight is love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when I was thinking about love this week and thinking about where could I go to get a good picture of love, I went to the poet of love. I went to Dr. King. Um, and I was reading a sermon that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave on November of 1957 in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And he says this in his sermon. He told a story of driving with his brother one night from Atlanta to Chattanooga. And his brother was driving the car. And for some reason, the drivers were very discourteous this night, he said. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly, my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights... I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and I said, oh, no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it'll end up in mutual destruction for all. Someone has got to have sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights. And that's the trouble, isn't it? That as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations, having looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights, and they decided to refuse to dim theirs. As one man tells, out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. 
And if somebody doesn't have sense enough to turn on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in this world, the whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction. Destruction. And we will all end up destroyed because no one had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense. Men must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe, and you do that by love. Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, put love on. If you are united to Christ through faith, you are united to him both in his death and his resurrection. And he is bringing change in you as you put off death and put on love. And he is making change in you for the sake of others, for the sake of your neighbor and for the sake of the world. Now, what would Wake Forest look like? What would Wake Forest look like if just us in this room lived this way? If just us in this room... In the words of Paul, put off death and put on love. Or in the words of King, turning on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in the world. How would this change the culture in your classrooms? How would this change the culture culture in your dorm? How would this change the culture of the party scene? Could you imagine a campus where instead of bringing an outside trainers for bystander intervention training. They asked you in this room to do it because you are known for how well you love your neighbors here at Wake. Here's the thing. If you try to do this on your own, you're going to fail. You might succeed at it for a little bit, but soon that stallion will turn back into a lizard and begin whispering lies to you again. Soon you'll be exhausted of trying to forgive others out of your own strength, and you will refuse to dim your lights for the sake of others on this highway of life. On your own, this will be at best just another self-improvement project you can add to your resume. And you will slink back into that small-town culture where you know what everyone's done, but you are not allowing for anyone to be honest about what has been done to them. This will happen if you try to do this on your own. Well, then how do you do it? How do you put off death and put on love? Look at verse 15 to 17. Paul says that you have to let Christ take over your heart. Christ, who didn't put off death, but was swallowed up by it on the cross, where for our sake he who knew no sin became sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, who on the cross was the fullest expression of God's love for you, Gracing as he was disgraced, gracing the world with forgiveness for sin while he was disgraced by the shameful death of the cross. Let this Christ take over your heart. Let his peace rule in your heart. Jesus made peace by his blood on the cross. Let that peace, the peace he accomplished through his bloody death, let that peace rule in your heart. And let his word dwell in you richly. If you want this campus to know the love of Christ, then you have to know it first. Notice that Paul doesn't call you to dwell in the word, but rather to let the word dwell in you. Let it fill you. How? Well, put yourself in places where you hear the word taught. Put yourself in places where you can sing true things of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Let his peace rule in you. 
Let his word dwell in you and do it all in the name of Jesus. Y'all, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is making for himself a new people, a people who are putting off death and who are putting on love for the sake of the world. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, and we pray that by your spirit would you help us to do this. Help us together to put sin to death and to put virtue on. We ask that you would show us your grace in Jesus. Make it clear to us the extent to which you have gone for us in love so that we might be joined with you for eternity. Would you make us people worthy of your name here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.